this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Wednesday, March 29th, 2023, recording a day early. Whoa, Rebecca, we're, I mean, we're really shaking it up here. Uh, we got to be careful. It's a Wednesday. I know, we're coming up on 10 years. We just like got to try something different. So let's record 12 hours earlier than we normally do and see 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 what happens there. I'm getting out of town uh, for a few days for spring break. Um, so we're getting this one in the can a little bit early. Uh, let's see, front matter. I just, I, I didn't tell you this, but I just did the first cut of the first edition of first edition the first episode of first edition exciting so that will be available april 5th so next week just a couple days after this show is available i'll put a link in the show notes there you can find it wherever podcasts are not to spoil anything but rebecca you you joined me in the first segment and we had a blast i hope you'll if you like this show you gotta listen to you may not like anything else but you gotta go listen to rebecca um, and I'm there too in that first segment of uh, first edition. You if can get you, it wherever you, you get like your stuff. If you like the uh, our long running bit where Jeff comes in to play a game with me that I know nothing about, right. you're going to be <laughs> quite delighted. That's the only way I can keep up is I have if I have an information dissymmetry over oh, you. you. Otherwise, I just kind. get nuked. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not that's not what I'm looking for at this point. So go check that out. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah, there's a trailer up if you want to get a sense of it. There's a Substack too, and I wrote a little bit about. Uh, in the first, the send went, but you know, the Substack works, you can find it. I'll put a link in the show notes there about kind of features and benefits, why I'm doing it, um, and what it's going to look like. Really excited to get started there. I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be really good. I cut a two-hour interview into 22 minutes, so that is something. That, that is impressive. I'm going to be asking you to send me this cut so I can listen to it before the show goes live, but I have been wondering how you were going to Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, really it's, it's not really a secret, done. but I had Yadon Israel, um, who's a senior editor at Simon & Schuster, who came up with, and I, we talked about it on the show, right, the Advanced Readers Club, or did we not? I can't remember if we talked about it on the show or not. Do you remember? No, we didn't. We talked okay. about it privately. Yeah, privately. So um, he's doing this thing, it's called Advanced Readers Club, where to get review copies into different kinds of people's hands, right? So there's there's a whole infrastructure and ecosystem about getting review copies out to, you know, editors or influencers or whatever else it might be. And it's a fairly unwieldy, complicated, entrenched system. And Yadon thinks that there's some other people that are influential and can advocate for a book that don't, that sort of fall outside that normal thing. And so he's doing a pilot. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And I wanted to talk to him about that. But also just kind of the book industry in general. And one of these, I'm going to do segments with people from the publishing industry to talk about how books are made and behind the scenes kind of stuff. 
and it evolved into this rambling two hour interview. And like the first 45 minutes were actually recorded, quote unquote. And we just kept talking. He's a really interesting person. This is exactly the kind of thing I hope to have the conversations about. No one's going to listen to that two hours. You know, we got interrupted by technology and other things that went in there. So, um, but I'm trying to distill it down to uh, the best little bits. But there's going to be, I'm calling those segments Reading Incorporated. There's going to be interviews, lists, recommendations. Um, one thing that's coming up soon, I'll say, is Vanessa Diaz, Kelly Jensen, and I are going to do a retrospective art on Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, in anticipation of the movie coming out. I'm really excited to look at that. Um, a lot more talk about uh, historical period products than maybe I would have thought initially, but important work that we're going to be doing there. And I'm not kidding. Yep. It's super fascinating to to take a look at. So all kinds of stuff. And here's maybe the most important thing now for you, listener who's been here with us for a while or, or maybe new. Um, I'm really trying to figure out what to make with that show. So feedback is is more than welcome. I mean, you know, you could you could take the rough edge off the feedback. I wouldn't mind that. Uh, but honest uh, feedback, I really want to make something people like. Um, and so continue thinking about there. That's called First Edition. You can find it wherever. Uh, let's do our first sponsor break and uh, we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by The Safe Keep by Yell Vanderwalden. This new debut is an exhilarating, twisting tale of desire, suspicion, and obsession between two women staying in the same house in the Dutch countryside during the summer of 1961. It's a powerful exploration of the legacy of World War II and the darker parts of our collective past. It's mysterious, sophisticated, sensual, and infused with intrigue, atmosphere, and sex. The Safe Keep is a brilliantly plotted and provocative debut novel you won't soon forget. Also... It's literary enough if you like literary fiction while still being spicy enough for certain corners of book talk. You know the corners I'm talking about. And while at first there's a cool detachment to these characters and this story, the heat builds and builds until it explodes into a tale of twisted desires, histories, and homes, and the unexpected shape of revenge. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to The Safe Keep by Yale Vanderwilden for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Hachette Audio. Three years ago, sports agent Myron Balatar gave a eulogy at the funeral of his client, renowned basketball coach Greg Downing. So why, you may ask, is Greg now being placed at the scene of a double, not a singular, but a double homicide? I also wonder. So Greg Downing, who Myron gave a eulogy for is a suspect and Myron needs some answers. So Myron and Wynn, longtime friends and colleagues, set out to find the truth, but the more they discover about Greg, the more dangerous their world becomes. Secrets, lies, and a murderous conspiracy that stretches back into the past churn at the heart of Harlan Coben's blistering new novel, Think Twice. And the audiobook is narrated by his longtime narrator, Steve Weber. Now, if you don't know about Steve, Steve gives each character distinct voices and accents, making this a more immersive listen. Make sure to check out Think Twice by Harlan Coben. And thanks again to Hachette Audio for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. 
Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. I think the Court of Rightness is pleased today. I don't know if they intervened here, but Rebecca, why is the Court of Rightness pleased today? Because Filippo Bernardini, the manuscript thief whose story we've been following for, I think, more than a year now, Mm -hmm. uh, he was sentenced basically to time served, plus uh, ordered to pay $88,000 in restitution to Penguin Random House that reimburses them for legal fees and expert fees that it paid uh, to go through this prosecution and will be deported from the U.S. back to his home in the U.K., uh, but will not be serving any time in prison, which, Mm -hmm. as we've discussed on a previous episode, I think is the right call for this person this crime uh, and the way that the whole thing shook out. I did just want to note, I've seen some like uh, fluttering in the Mm. bookish discourse about like deportation is not the way to respond to things. And in general, I would agree with that. In this case, Bernardini lives in the UK and has been held in the US for the last more than a year while the investigation and the trial mm-hmm. were ongoing. He was under you know court supervision, functionally house arrest. Um, his home is in the UK being here in the U.S. was quite a hardship for him. Uh, so this is not like you came here and we're... It's not deportation punishment. It's, it's like me being deported to Hawaii. It's like, right. okay, I'll, oh no, sorry. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The judge might intend it that way. Functionally, he has to leave the country, uh, but he's not trying to stay here. So mm. the, the impact of that uh, is a little bit different. But yeah, I think the Court of Rightness is indeed pleased with how this went down. There should have been consequences. There are consequences. These seem appropriate. Do you think in the um, publishing industry version of Mad Men, which we'll never get, but I kind of want to believe, (laughs) is this a one-episode story arc, a season-long story arc? Is this... um, you know, Pete Campbell goes breaks bad in the world of publishing, or is it even is it even that much? Is, or is it just the gay Bob who kills Pete Campbell's I, mother, pushes her off a cruise ship? Spoiler alert for Mad Men, but I is, what story, is this? What is? I guess I'm trying to figure out. Like, yeah, that's a great question. Is this something other than a novelty, or is there something no. else here? I think this is a novelty mm-hmm. in this arrangement of it. That if you were going to do the publishing version of Mad Men and you wanted to have something like this, I think it would be like a ripped from the headlines with the twist situation where like the, the manuscript thief needs to have some sort of payoff. There needs to be yeah. something going on other than this is a kind of yeah sad and marginalized person who seems to have mental illness things that are going on as well. Like if it's somebody ripping off the latest Margaret Atwood manuscript to try to sell it or do something bad, like right. some sort of public facing or and, and personal gain motivation uh, beyond what this story is could make for interesting TV as it is here. This is not interesting TV. Yeah. So unless you flip it around to make the not interesting bit of it interesting, that is the sort of vocational awe that comes with books mm-hmm. and literature and reading, right? Like the stakes of here were nothing. And yet yeah. it 
felt like being shut out from this thing Bernardini really seemed to care about in a way that many of us care about it. And he, he did something that's, uh, you know, a toxic, a toxic response to that. Mm-hmm. But at the core of it is about wanting to be a part of the show in, in a way or whatever that looks like and holding on with both hands and trying to feel special. And I think if you highlighted that bit, also the Mad Men in publishing, which I just invented, admit you would watch that. You would watch that. <laughs> I would. And, you know, there's uh, R.F. Kuang has a new book out uh, in yeah. the next couple of months called Yellow Face that is kind of a look at the publishing industry, uh, looks at what's going on with race in the publishing industry and sort of the politics inside. And I'm already hoping that that gets adapted. I would watch The Mad Men of Publishing, especially with the caveat that it takes place like in that same sort of oh. heyday of publishing. I don't really want to watch a show right now about no. publishing right now. I don't actually think the industry is all that interesting. Yeah, I would do it. I'd age it up a little. I think in the 70s, right? The height yeah. of like the, yeah. the New York Norman Mailer. Like people were punching mm-hmm. themselves, punching each other in the face at Elaine's over book reviews. <laughs> right. This like, country used to be great, the, Rebecca. The- <laughs> The three martini lunch, the Algonquin round table, all that sort of situation where the industry was really a small pond Mm. in ways that it's not anymore. It's still pretty closed off and exclusive in in many ways, Uh, but the internet especially has, has changed that quite a bit and just the way that culture has evolved. But I do think the 60s and 70s would be a fascinating moment for for a look at publishing. This is not a... This is not a wholly spontaneous idea because the show, is it called Julia? All these Julia Child properties need to call it something other than Julia something. But the HBO Max Plus, what are we, what are we, it's HBO Max? I don't even know It's HBO it Max. I know, yes. but I, I think some of the stuff you can get on just, and it doesn't matter. It's the home box office flotilla of properties. It's one of them that's in there. Um, there's a Julia Child Mad Men, but for Julia Child, it's like it's very similar, right? It feels the same, oh, like highly okay, production yeah. designed. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as spiky as Mad Men, but a little spikier is than say Julia. Julia, is that one? Sure, that one is? I didn't watch it. Okay, yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, sure. It's it was pleasant, but Judith Jones is a real person who is a character in that show, who's Julia Child's editor, and then she's also editing um, uh, Updike, and Updike makes an mm-hmm. appearance, and I was like, wait, could I take the branch down that? Wait, what door do I open to go into that show? <laughs> or- like early to mid '80s, when Toni Morrison is an editor yeah. at Penguin Random House, and then starts writing her novels. Or the '20s, you know, where you got Hemingway and 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 the Harlem Renaissance. Maybe that's even better because you could get a little bit, you know, some uh, different perspectives and things in there. But I would watch <laughs> a period higher, but for publishing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, diversion there. Long story short, Filippo Bernardini. I hope. I hope can can figure his life out and it's not the end of the, yes. of the road for this um also don't get fished don't just give people manuscripts you know maybe check a check an email address every now and again maybe we learn something there um i have an i have an ai chat gpt thought too but you found this story hey, did you use this yet tell tell the people i this, did uh, AI. Okay, yeah tell so the the folks at Library Thing have, which is a Goodreads competitor, if you're mm-hmm. not familiar, uh, have introduced an AI search tool for when you can't remember a book title. Uh, I just came across this last night. Uh, it works, I think, pretty well. And they, mm-hmm. when you go to the URL, which is in the show notes that y'all can try out, you get a little pop-up that says, like, basically, 
this thing is not perfect yet. It's early. Some of the AI tech is early. It's not super good at capturing books that have been published since 2021, ostensibly, I think, because there's just less public information about those for the web to crawl. Um, I tried it on a handful of things. Uh, The first, I just was looking at the books that are on my desk. So for why I was trying to get White Noise by Don DeLillo, and I did like book about disaster, middle-aged professor, did not get white noise. But then I was trying to get uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman and Tversky, Uh and I did a Cognitive Bias Nobel Prize. And it came up with that and also Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project. I got about half the titles I was looking for. Um, I I was doing exclusively like keywords on what the book is about because that was kind of what was recommended in the pop-up here on Mm. Library Thing. When or if they can get to cover color, that's where the magic will be. As every like librarian and bookseller will tell you, it was, yep. it was blue and yep. there was maybe yep. a cat exactly. or maybe it was a tank. I don't know. <laughs> or some sort of like uh, advanced Boolean AI situation mm. where you could do like, it's a disaster. There's a middle-aged professor. The cover has a cat. Maybe it's yellow. <laughs> and and see what comes up. But this was, I I thought, of creative and fun use of AI inside the book industry, Um, an interesting thing to see. It hadn't occurred to me that somebody might do it this way, but of course you can generally try to like Google your way to finding those same kinds of things, and Google is pretty decent at those results. So I was just happy to see somebody trying this, using AI in a reader service focused way yeah um, yeah that was just that's it i think uh i'd recommend clicking that link trying it out for a couple books on your own desk see how it does and uh if you can remember to use it the next time you're like what was the name of that book i would love to hear about it in like in genuine use cases rather than the constructed ones we're doing of what's just sitting around to to test the tool i was messing around with chat gpt the other day i put a screenshot in our in our company slack mm-hmm. and um you know that i'm I'm looking for any way to understand the duology of the passenger and stella maris by one cormac mccarthy <laughs> so i plugged in all right come on let's go uh what is the function of mathematics in stella maris by cormac mccarthy and ChatGPT said, I don't think there is a novel called Stella MacArthur's by Cormac McCarthy. I think you're wrong and you're dumb, meat sack man. Uh, and I thought that was rude, but... That is rude. Anyway, there you go. I, again, yeah, I think it's, it's the same. There isn't information. Yeah. I think there was a recent update that maybe had some other stuff in there. Again, the new, the the, the capital N new is not great. But if you need something right. that can regurgitate, recombinate, and spit it back out, it can be pretty interesting. I Go ahead. I was saying, like, maybe in five years after someone has written that master's thesis about the function of mathematics and stuff, yeah, you'll be yeah. able to get it. <laughs> but if you're the original creator, you've got, there's some ocean in front of you. I tell you one thing I did, uh, there's, again, I was looking at, I was thinking of segment ideas, and it, this year is the 100th anniversary of, no, is it 100th, 50th? 100th anniversary of um, 13 ways, the poem, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird, right? A famous poem. And I was like, is there a segment? Like, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And I was like, who's written about third? I put in chat, chat GPT because I, I know that this is not a good Google search. I just know I'm going to get the Amazon links and then the Goodread link and it's going to be a mess. So I'm like, who's written about this? And I was like, nah, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. But some people say, the here's the meaning of the poem. And it's like a 10th grade reading. Okay, fine. It's like, okay, have any poets written poems in response to 13 ways of looking mm. at a blackbird? And it gave me six or seven good ones. I mean, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Now I have to go, you know, do the work there, but... Got to do some fact-checking. I think if it can get you to the interesting work faster, um, 
that's going to be yes. pretty interesting as well to see how that develops. There was a, well, I've got adventures in book Twitter coming up here in a minute, but I, I and I don't want to step on that yet because I have real thoughts about this and I'd be curious on your take. But I saw some, there's a lots, lots of people are worried about ChatGPT on book Twitter. I know you're going to be shocked, Rebecca, that it's not going super great <laughs> over there for keeping a level head and let's see what happens. Oh, the discourse is not good at staying no, the dis, calm? The di, well, the discourse discourse loves this. this. This is red meat for the discourse. This is red yes. meat with A1 steak but, sauce and uh, a side of collard greens. Like the, the discourse is ready. Red meat for the discourse is not good for anybody's blood pressure. No, we don't like that. Nor is red meat. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. But it's like, you know, in 10 to, there was one tweet, 10 to 15 years, it's going to comprise the bulk of the literary marketplace, AI-generated <laughs> stuff. It's like, well, I'm glad you're confident about that. And and maybe, you know, these things can get good enough to maybe approximate some kinds of writing. I think especially genre writing, if you plugged in 10,000 romance novels, maybe you could spit mm-hmm. one out. Here, I've come to this thought too, and I'm, I want to try this out on for you. Let's say it gets to that point where it can do that. I think still people aren't going to want to read that because I think people on the whole are more interested in people than we give them credit for. And I'll tell you, uh, and here's an example I'd give you. We have things that can go a lot faster than 22 miles an hour, and yet people watched Usain Bolt run 100 <laughs> yards for 25 years. I'm serious. I'm serious. Yes, like the, yeah, the human I mean, element is part of it. Like it, it computers is. can have... wipe the map with Magnus Ver Magnuson or whatever. No, that's that's the world's strongest man. Some guy named Magnus is like the greatest <laughs> chess player in the world right now. And a computer by itself could wipe the map with him, but he still plays other real humans and people watch it because we're interested in what people can do. Well, we know machines can do things, but we are people people. That you know? is where... So. I think that's where the stakes live. And maybe to step a little bit on front list foyer, yeah. Adam Gopnik writes about this in The Real Work, um, which is about mastery, but that like the thing that makes us drawn to even a masterful work of music or art is that there are always flaws. There are always yeah. imperfections. There's always like a tremble in somebody's voice or a place where the painter did something unexpected or just, you know, really different or even the kind of thing that like a critic wouldn't advise them to do but it works maybe because of the dissonance and that it's that human element that other humans respond to i think that's right you know to stick with the ai examples like we have self-driving cars that are pretty good Hmm. and nascar has not been replaced we're not just people aren't like filling stadiums to watch a bunch of robot cars race each other Mm -hmm. we're still watching humans get in those cars and risk their lives and do that thing and i do think that that fundamental human element is what what draws us to art like i i would put if i had to be a betting woman in this situation i would bet on there is a place for AI in some corner of creative works, that there will be some books mm-hmm. written by AI. There will be some art that's created by AI. All of those things. There will be some music composed by AI and that the vast majority of the things that succeed and that we talk about and that have longevity because we connect to them will continue to be things that are produced by humans yeah. for that reason, that we are interested in each other and there's something about knowing a human made this that's fascinating. Like Mm -hmm. my brain doesn't work the way that a musician's does and listening to someone talk about how they put a song together just will always be fascinating to me. Um, I think the tie is going to go to the human when we're interested in creative works. Like even if the AI could create something exactly as good, the tie is going to the human. Now the thing that, that chat GPT and other large language models can do 
somewhat right now, but probably in 10 or 15 years will be an order of magnitude better than even we can imagine, is the speed. That, that's that's a thing, right? Where if you can flood the market with James Patterson ripoff novels because you've been scanning James Patterson and ghostwritten James Patterson novels into ChatGPT for 30 years, <laughs> you could probably do a passable you know, one. And maybe there's a market for that. Maybe there's a market for that you know commodified writing. But if we go from commercial to upmarket to literary, the farther you go up that change, the more people are going to want unicity and humanity and specificity. Um, I think that's a really fascinating take to explore that Mm. maybe the, the part of the arts that we are the most worried about with AI are actually the ones that are the safest, like the higher the art, the safest, the safer it is that literary fiction is probably going to be fine. (laughs) Yeah. But something or still, it's going to be remain, it's going to remain anemic. <laughs> it's not going to get any worse because of no, AI. No. But the stuff that is, you know, really formulaic and that there is a ton of it available mm-hmm. to feed artificial intelligence like James Patterson, perfect example, that might be potentially overtaken by AI. And I don't know, are the readers who are into the James Patterson vibe as attached to this is art created by a human as the folks who are worried about, you know, are we still going to get, you know, the 200 copy print run collections of poetry from small presses or is AI going to overtake those? Like as as those folks are connected to the art, it would be really interesting to see like what happens in this alternate universe or maybe future universe to a publishing industry where the stuff that sells so well that it underwrites the existence of everything else mm-hmm. is something you can make with a robot and then not have to pay a person for. Yeah. And I don't know really why this struck me, but you know, um, you can always tell what products are the most commodified by their efforts to differentiate themselves. And the one that always strikes me is um, like beauty products and skincare mm-hmm. where, you know, um, Rihanna has a line that's Fenty and then someone else will have a line. And, and I, I, my, they're not in the, you know, Rihanna's not in a lab mixing up foundation. I, I don't hate to burst anyone's <laughs> bubble about what's happening here, but because it's commodified, because these are chemical products produced in giant factories in Bangladesh or China or New Jersey or whatever, the thing to differentiate it is attaching a notable human to them. Right, so that humanity becomes a special thing, because the mascara, mascara's mascara, despite all the L'Oreal pseudoscience you're going to see in the Super Bowl, well, it's not a Super Bowl ad, in an Oscars ad, it's all kind of commodified. There's not a lot of special tech that goes into that, and it's especially not Zendaya or whoever, you know. So the thing that gets layered onto it is some way to connect to a person to differentiate it from all the other commodified products. And it would make sense to me that if language becomes commodified, at least at a certain level, that something similar would happen too. You know, maybe we'll have a spokesperson for this particular chatbot creation. Um, <laughs> branding still matters, right? Yeah. You could, you mm-hmm. could, Warren Buffett famously said, you know, you could give me a hundred billion dollars and I still couldn't beat Coke. And it's not because Coke is awesome. Coke is very good. On a hot day, glass of Coke with ice, forget about it. But the point is, is like, we have an attachment to it that transcends the actual thing yes. itself. And that is branding, that's affinity, that's history, that's experience. And it's going to be very hard for the the cold logic of silicon to compete with, I think, a natural inclination to prefer to connect with people given a chance to do so. Mm-hmm. I think this is also why we're seeing the conversation shift back to 
curation yeah, over that's right. influence and algorithm. Because just a cold, hard algorithm spitting stuff at you that it wants you to see, mm-hmm. you might land on things that are enjoyable and interesting, but it lacks that piece of connection to this recommendation came to me from a person that I like or admire or aspire to be like or envy or feel I have something in common with. And that's why I'm picking it up and I get to be part of that community, that lifestyle, that concept or idea. And it's that connection is just really important. You know, you quote Forrester here all the time. I think if we had to like give the Book Riot podcast mm-hmm. some sort of unofficial slogan, we might come <laughs> back to just connect. Just connect. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's right. like what we're, what we're trying to be about. What pe- it's what people are about. And that like, I understand this technology is new, new technology that is really disruptive this way is always scary in some capacity. Ezra Klein did a really interesting episode recently talking about this, about how like this is the rare case where the people building the technology are maybe the most scared. You don't love that. It. On the whole, you don't love to see it. You know, it's like Robert right, Oppenheimer and, and the OpenAI dudes, like, hmm. Right. Yeah, and yet they continue to build it. There's a lot going on yeah. there. It can be disruptive. It will be disruptive in some way, but some thinking about the things that are foundationally human and how intractable those have been at least so far in human history and human society uh, is helpful for me for keeping some feet on the ground and and not just assuming that the sky is falling let's do a another sponsor break and come up with maybe an interesting transitional story here that uh, may, may or may not connect to some of the ideas today's episode is brought to you by sourcebooks landmark From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony. The villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer, and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors in major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout 
And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. Um, we're getting another example of one of our great questions that we have. Um, the first 10 all relate to ebook pricing, so put those to the side. <laughs> um, the next 10 are about audiobook pricing. We'll put to those to the side. But once we're in like the 20s, we get to something called celebrity imprint, right? Yes. And I think the most notable one we've seen, Sarah Jessica Parker, that came after the height of her fame in Sex and the City, but not too long after. Bourdain That's did it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen Phoebe Robinson with Tiny Reparations. I don't think she she has the the mind share that those two did and, and continue to do. But Questlove um, has announced that Questlove is starting an imprint. And I think the phrasing there, not to be that guy, close reader, there's not too many of us. So maybe I'm a close reader guy. I don't know if that's a corner that I, I have to myself. Um, Questlove is not starting an imprint. Uh, this is how this these things get talked about. A publisher is partnering with Questlove to mad lib verb here, new books. Because we don't really know how this works. Like We don't. I, we don't know. And I think this is an interesting one and maybe a more interesting one I've seen in a, in a while. But we don't know how, you know, Questlove is getting pitches from agents. Uh, there's an acquiring editor that's giving Questlove thing. I don't get this, Rebecca, so I'm always less excited than maybe I should be. Though this one I should be more interested in because I don't know what books are going to get put into the world that wouldn't otherwise. That's my. That's always my question mm-hmm. about this. Or is this more like Rihanna going to uh, Chanel or Chanel coming to Rihanna and say, you know, we're going to launch this new product line. Would you like to be the face of it and talk about it and be a part of the marketing or whatever? But fundamentally, you're a, an ambassador spokesperson rather than a creator. And Questlove is as a creative person, as about as a creative person as you can get, multi-talented, multi-faceted, and has a hands in a lot of different pies. Um, and I'm just not sure. I, this sounds fascinating to me, but I always caveat this with, I don't know what this means for A-B testing the universe. The B version of the universe without this, which of these books don't exist or don't or don't happen? And which of them just get a higher profile than would otherwise? Which is still good, but it's fundamentally different different to me. I think it's a great question as well. And I'm interested. I think Questlove is the most interesting person, maybe, of the people that we've seen. High on our draft board, if we were to pick people, I would think, together, right? Yes. Um, The note here in this piece in the Times by Alexandra Alter says he came up with the idea of starting the imprint a few years ago when he was working on the really wonderful documentary Summer of Soul, which if you have not seen, wonderful, um, is about a cultural festival that was held in Harlem in 1969, featuring just like a murderer's row of incredible Mm. black artists and the footage had been sitting like sitting in a basement literally for decades um that this event even occurred kind of a black equivalent of woodstock in many ways had been largely lost to history because no one had continued to write about it and the footage had been lost and he just resurrects it and made this really fantastic documentary and he said you know he was thinking about the fact that the concert had marked a pivotal moment in American cultural history but had been forgotten and that with the rapid influx of death that was happening with black creators and no one to pass down the recipes, he wanted to bring action Mm. to a dire situation, he says, and that publishing books seemed like a way to keep a record and to give overlooked cultural figures and movements 
their due. So he's partnering with MCD, which is kind of a, a the note here is that it, a literary imprint runs toward the experimental. It's an FSG um, imprint. And this, I think, feels similar to like what we've seen Phoebe Robinson do yeah. or what One World is doing, uh, the PRH imprint yeah. One World of edited, big edited publishers. Yes, uh, which fantastic. Some great books have come out of One World. Um, but big publishers recognizing or ha- have recognized that there is a need for more and better representation of black voices and black experience. One of the ways to do that is to hire famous black people in the world of art and culture to curate those imprints. I think one of our shared questions is, does anybody who doesn't work in publishing care that these books are curated by yeah. a celebrity? When the rubber meets does the road, even, does anyone be like, oh, Questlove like, did this, and I buy right, that like, versus not buying Most of the time, it doesn't even make its way into the marketing. No, I don't think that any cover, of like the... Not on the colophon? I mean, yeah, the Sarah Jessica Parker imprint. I haven't seen any of that. Name um, one book. I can't do it. I can't do it. Right, Latoya Watkinson's, or Watkins' book that I read. Um, Parish From Phoebe, yes, Parish from Phoebe Robinson's imprint doesn't say like a Phoebe Robinson production mm-hmm. on it. And so it seems to me that what publishing is getting here is the sensibility of these folks. And they're kind of, they're a known quantity because we've seen Phoebe Robinson's work. We've seen Questlove's work. They have connections. You know, Questlove is saying here to Alexandra Alter that he intends to like keep his ear to the streets. He says, keep it underground. And keep I think that's interesting. People. I think yeah. that is interesting. That you otherwise would never have heard of. And I do believe that Questlove has connections to people who could write interesting books that mm-hmm. those people might not already be connected to publishing, might not already have agents. Like right. there is some curatorial, like, and like, I think nurturing of art possibility there. Um, I would believe that he's going to bring something new. That's not the same vibe as maybe an editor sitting in front of Sarah Jessica Parker saying, we got these 25 submissions, which ones do you like? Um, maybe it attracts writers who have been looking for a place to submit because they they also like Questlove's sensibility. This, these announcements do always raise, I think, the same collection of questions for us that you were talking about just a minute ago. But this one to me is the most interesting, I think just because Questlove's work is the most interesting. Yeah. So we'll watch that and, and see what happens. Worth noting here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm ready. Are we? Are you ready for reports from a return to book Twitter or anything you want to hit Let's before we do, do that? It. Quick. No, I want to hear this report from book Twitter. So, um, the best practice of modern day podcast launching, and it's a tough environment to launch podcasts into right now. We're kind of um, there's a lot of them. It's easier to make than ever, which means there's a lot more of them. And some of the traditional ways of marketing podcasts are less available because of the algorithm, right? Um, short form video tends to be, tends to be, that's a massive understatement, is the <laughs> reigning uh, uh, king, queen, and the whole court. It's all of Versailles <laughs> is short form video right now when it comes to the, wor- the world of getting stuff out there. And maybe like Versailles, its days are numbered by a revolution coming in the form of the U.S. Congress. But anyway... Podcasts aren't especially amenable to that form. Some people do it. You do video, you do talking heads and blah, blah, blah. I will say for myself, I have zero interest in performing on camera for people to to watch stuff and do stuff that I'm interested in. If I, if I have to do that, then I'm going to do other things to do this particular thing. But mm-hmm. having said that, you got to pick a couple of socias, you know, and I've picked Twitter and Instagram because I know them a little bit. And also with Twitter, I can use it also to find people, connect with people, see what's going on in the discourse, see if there's anything I want to take from that or you know, who cares about what? So I saw Brandon Taylor tweeting about Edith Wharton. He's Edith Wharton's number one fan. 
you if you don't think Amazing. I'm filing that away for future whatever, you are incorrect. <laughs> That's exactly the kind of thing I'm trying to see. Uh, Anne, uh, Anne Helen Peterson said that the, um, the Great Fire by Shirley Hazard's her favorite book of all time. Happens to be the 20th anniversary of the Great Fire this year. Pulitzer Prize winner. File that away. That's what I want. I don't know if it's going to come anything, but you can't get that information any other way that I'm aware of. On the other hand, in order to get that, in order <laughs> to get those kernels of wheat, the chaff, Rebecca, is... I had forgotten. I don't know how different it was. There are people that spend, in our industry, ours, the publishing industry, spend a lot of time on Twitter, mm-hmm. and it does something to you. And I don't know if Time Away has just thrown it into relief or it's really that different, but wow, 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 I believe wow. this is what the kids are referring to as being chronically online. Extremely online. I don't know. Um uh, you're, you're, if you if the internet is a vine, some people are overripe and need to be picked um, because <laughs> it is. That's one thing. touch grass. And then you know people say Twitter is not the real world, and I and that's right. What is the real world? Blah blah blah. But then then some stories take off in the and again this is I've curated. This is not a representation of all of book Twitter. I know there's a bunch of different genres, and I'm not really in the influence world that much. This is pretty much authors and writers, publishers, critics. That kind of situation. Influencers of the um, old school kind, really, more than the new school kind. But even among that cast, I'm like, this is how people spend their time and attention and energy. Um, and it, that's a surprise to me in a way I'd forgotten. Hmm. Um, a couple, th- And then there are things that take off on Twitter that I'm like, in the n- regular world, or I guess let's call it the 80% world, where 80% of things actually happen and have a different kind of weight. Doesn't matter at all. So one thing was I saw. Did you read Biography of X? Is that why it's on Frontless for you? For you? Did you? No, I thought that that was your okay. Note. Okay, I put it in the wrong spot because this was supposed to be from the book Twitter spot because this oh, book came okay. out last week and it was all over the Twitter feed for first edition. That's what I'm using. I don't have a private Twitter. I'm just using that one, and I'm not going to be posting on that other than stuff about first edition. And it was all over the place. There was reviews. It's a transitional work, the transformational work, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, I'll go to Powell's on my on my normal Tuesday, swing through the new books. They didn't have it, Rebecca. It wasn't on the shelves. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, right. It's not yep. real. I mean, maybe there was one <laughs> copy that got sold, but Powell's was it's, not like having 50 copies. It wasn't even a... It was, so I was. I had a real moment it's of like... It's a hall of mirrors. It's a, yeah, and maybe there is a candle in one of those rooms, but because it's at the end of a sequence of mirrors, it gets refracted, distorted, and amplified, and it's hard to connect that with, you know, most people, I guess. I'll use capital M, most people, to, to represent the other thing. And I thought that was really, really interesting to me to watch and mm. try to stay grounded, like use it for what it's good for, but then not confuse what... Twitter does with might be interesting to a generically interested book person because they're not the same thing. Yes, they're just that's not. right. They're not the same thing. People that are opting in, I would think that in any industry or any like niche interest area, books or music or movies or whatever, they're probably mm-hmm. doing their own version. I, yeah, they have to be. of this. But what's interesting to like the hardest of the hardcore in that thing in that area of interest is almost never what is interesting to the mainstream, the normies, the normie readers who are just going to wander into their Barnes and Noble and pick up something that looks interesting or ask their friend who loves books a little more than they do what they should be reading. And I think Twitter, you know, took off so quickly and worked well enough for so long and then became what it was really during 
in my experience, the 2016 election, which is when I got off of Twitter um, and my understanding of it after, because it rewards, like, that's an algorithm too. It's a space yeah. that rewards uh, a sense of likeness with other people that rewards some affinity that also rewards a hot take and speed over mm-hmm. nu- nuance and consideration. Like it rewards, you know, giving people either something to identify with that they can amplify or something to be angry about that they will amplify because they're responding to it in opposition. Yeah. <laughs> and, and inside like the insideriest corners of places, I think something like Biography of X, which does sound really interesting. Yeah, I think I will read it. Even uh, everything yeah. I've said that. So maybe, maybe I'm maybe it's, I'm being um, Twitter pilled, like even a, as I'm like, watch out for being Twitter pilled. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right, like it had been on my list of things to mm-hmm. consider for the spring. Um, I was really excited that it was dropped on the agenda here because I thought that you were going to talk about it in front oh, of list foyer, and then switch. I would get to go through the <laughs> Jeff filter of Am I going to care <laughs> about this book? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or not? Like that's. Twitter is a place where you get to feel connected and amplify something and writers do use it for networking. So those are, I hope are genuine, you know, expressions of enthusiasm, but my memory of time on Twitter was also people being like, I've promoted all of so-and-so's books and they never said anything about mine. Like a sort of, you know, the economy of favors gets dialed up, you know, and really, really exponentially grows over there there's i think just taking twitter with a giant you know heap of salt is probably yeah. if you got to be there it's probably the way to do it right and people can do whatever i mean i'm I'm not sure. trying to judge people's use maybe people they get connection and utility and networking and there's all kinds of reasons it, what i i'm there for the links man rebecca that's what mm-hmm. i'm there for the links i want to see the interesting links the story and i think this case of this brandon sanderson profile and wired and the response is the yin yes. and yang for me of what I want and don't. I want to know this thing exists. This, there's a profile on Brandon San, about, on, by Brandon, on Brandon, about Brandon Sanderson in Wired um, by um, a writer named Jason Cahey. I think that's how you say his name. I'll put a link in the show notes. Which, you read this. I don't want to spend too much time <laughs> no. on it. I think it is a fascinating document and the kind of thing I would like to hear sort of journalists maybe do their own sub stack on. I don't want to see a tweet about it. That's not what I want. Yeah. I was just thinking that I think I've replaced Twitter with 9 million sub stacks that I yeah, subscribe to. And maybe to you could because, do that. You could possibly yeah. do that. Right. Like that's the place where I do get somebody's longer form thoughts and then mm-hmm. also curated links to things by people whose thinking I know and respect. Yeah, um, but yeah, that that profile is really something. <laughs> it's really something, and I don't know that we want to talk about it. All, but then the response to it took over, and it's still going on, as far as I can is tell. It? People are still Gosh. having takes, and now uh, Esquire has done a counter profile where they went and profiled Sanderson with the knowledge of the wire. So oh, it's like, man, this makes me tired. I, so I'm like, whoa, you, you know, it's very easy. You, you come up to the mirror, and you got to, you can't lean over, Alice, because you're going to fall through that looking glass. Like, use the mirror, but yes. don't fall through it. Is a very difficult line. Um, to trace I don't know so I thought that was that's where I am I'm sure if I did something mm-hmm. with book talk now I, which I did and I what I can't it's all chaff to me I'll be honest about what I've seen with book talk I, I, I couldn't figure out what the kernel for me was there um, but this one I'm like man there's a deal I'm making with being on Twitter at all and I'm not on there every day you know I go in once in the morning and kind of scroll through with my coffee as part of my, you know, the morning rounds you do on the internet. Mm-hmm. You check your RSS, mm-hmm. you check your emails, you check your sub stacks. 
Um, and this is, a, you know, I do 10 minutes and, and keep up with it, but it is a time, attention, and value gravity well that you got to be careful because if you pass the event horizon, it's very, very hard to um, get out of it. So I don't know. We'll see. Uh, on the other hand, if you're on Twitter and you know a, an account that shares good bookish links, hit me up. I want, I want to know what, what the best <laughs> follows are. I'm still trying to figure out um, following and unfollowing as we go. Yeah, figuring out how to use it and who to follow so it's a utility and not a time suck uh, or a soul suck is really yes. the trick, I think. All right, hit me up with Lucky Hank thoughts, and we'll do a couple minutes of Frontless Foyer before. All right, welcome to Rebecca's TV Corner, yeah, all right. which is just the thing cool. we're going to do here. You just here. put this on there. You're like, you, you keep texting me about it, and I'm like, I'm glad you're enjoying it, and you, you're just gonna you're just going to manifest discourse about Lucky Hank. Let's hear it. I'm going to do... Well, so two episodes of this have aired so far. Lucky Hank is the adaptation of Straight Man by Richard Russo that's airing on AMC and AMC+. Plus. It's starring Bob Odenkirk. I've watched both of the existing episodes it's a nice like gentle mm. show about a middle-aged professor at a mediocre college having Easy. a moment be very if you, careful <laughs> if you like the sort of skewering of academia you'll probably appreciate it i don't know if i think it's a great show but mm. i'm gonna watch the first season of it because it's bob odenkirk being bob odenkirk and the writing is pretty snappy but here is a moment of appreciation that i think you will enjoy as well so the second episode is called george saunders it is about george saunders coming to visit this campus and apparently hank Devereux, the odenkirk character has had what he thinks is like a long-running feud with george saunders that george saunders has been unaware imagine of getting into a feud with george saunders <laughs> what kind of monster would one need to be to do that right i was deeply deeply hoping that actual george saunders was going to show up yeah. on the show and play himself that did not happen brian husky uh who's you might recognize from veep plays george saunders what's funny is that Odenkirk looks more like George Saunders than the George Saunders actor does. But here's here's the glory moment. There's a scene where Saunders is supposed to be encouraging Hank about like, it's okay that you haven't written your second novel yet. A lot of great writers only write one novel. He's like, even Harper Lee only had one novel. The second one was just a draft. Yes. And I was I looked at Bob and I was like, I am one of four people watching this right now who are so glad. I want to follow that, that <laughs> TV writer's Twitter account. They're online. They got right. the link. They got a link. Yes, they do. That episode was written by Paul Lieberstein and Aaron Zellman. And my hat is off to them for getting that zinger in. Maybe for me and nobody else. Incredible. Great stuff. Good stuff. Um, I don't know that that's going to have the widest appeal. Uh, references to Harper Lee's second novel told in the form no, of no. a fake George Saunders. It is. I, I'm happy that it Honestly, I am surprised that it's on AMC's main channel and not just on the streamer because it is very, like there's a small pool of people that are interested. It has to be that Odenkirk show. was looking for something to do and somehow someone got this into his hands like, would you like to do this? Maybe he's a, he's, maybe he's a big Russo head. Maybe. Yeah, yeah I we don't call know them Russians. The story... Is that okay? We call the Richard Russo fans Russians? 
That'll work. No problem we'll with that. Work on that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what the the background is there, but the story that Odenkirk had agreed to play this character came out like well before Better Call Saul had ended, and they must have oh. rolled right from the ending of Better Call Saul into filming this. And Odin, you know, Better Call Saul was also at AMC, so I don't know like what's going on there. Who got this? Maybe it went to AMC, and they were like, "This seems like an Odenkirk joint." Right. Uh, he is perfectly cast for it. This character is a talker and. He's a, just one of the great, Odenkirk's one of the great talkers. Um, but like, is anyone but me watching this and cheering for the like sharp aside? About I think how it's a real problem that I'm novel. like dragging my feet. <laughs> if I'm dragging my feet on this. Yeah. Yeah. I um, won't be shocked if there's not a second season, but like I've already gotten everything I need out of this. Someone right. got a joke about how Harper Lee really did only write one book onto mainstream television. Yeah vindication in the voice of uh, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, let's do front list foyer. You got anything? Oh, you, these are both yours. I've read both of these, yeah. so we can maybe... we can. Yes. Uh, I did Band of Queens before, so was I right, wrong? How'd I do on the, my Band right. of Queens recommendation? You were right. When you read The Band of Queens by Perini Shroff, I think I bought it as you were talking about it on <laughs> that episode, yeah. which happens every now and then, uh, but had been sitting in my iPad and I was coming home from a trip last week and had finished what I was reading. It was like, what looks good for this flight? Oh, I've got Bandit Queens. It's so great. Uh, I think it's a perfect follow-on if you read and liked erotic stories for Punjabi widows, kind of that same vibe uh, set in a village in India about uh, a woman who believed that, that she is a widow and also believed that maybe she killed her husband or she knows she didn't kill her husband, but her village believes that she has killed her husband. And so other women start coming to her, enlisting her help in killing their husbands mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, chaos and shenanigans ensue, but also like some very sharp feminist moments ensue. I really, really liked it. I'm glad that it's in the world. Yeah. I'd say it's, um, it's a, a strangely uplifting and funny book with a <laughs> lot of trigger warnings. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's dark, but, or it's about something dark, but it manages to be light itself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was, it was a good read. I don't know if I said Um, this at the time, but the closest experiential comp to me or one that comes to mind in terms of the vibe and content is actually fried green tomatoes. It has a similar kind of uh uh women banding together in a, in a crappy, to put it mildly situation and do things that probably you should end up in jail for, or maybe could, or something, and yet it's a crowd pleaser at the same time? Yeah, Yeah, it's a goodbye Earl of a book. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Let's talk real work. I finished this, too. So let's do real work by Adam Gottman for a minute. You lead off. Man, it's so good. I had, I got like three pages into the digital galley before I was like, I have to immediately go to Barnes & Noble and buy this in hardcover so I can underline the crap Mm -hmm. out of (laughs) it. It's about the mystery of mastery, uh, as Gopnik puts it, really diving into not, this is not how to. And this book, I think, gave me an epiphany that this is where I am in like self help, mm-hmm. how to think about things books, is I am less interested in the prescriptive how to's than in the like, let's collectively think about what it means to do this thing kind of book. And <laughs> so Gopnik is thinking Jenny about Jenny O'Dell's ears are burning right now, just, they're just on fire. <laughs> Talking to you, Oliver Berkman. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is Berkman's fault. I think that was my road to Damascus yeah. moment uh, here. But it's Adam Gopnik thinking out loud about 
why do we like to master things? What does mastering things give us? What does the process feel like? What can it look like in different situations? And the most fascinating bits are in the opening and closing where he's with a group of like expert amateur magicians. (laughs) And the real work is a phrase that people in the magic community use to talk about like who really can do that trick, like not just who can execute it, but who makes it look elegant and feel truly magical. And they would say like, that guy's got the real work on. It's an iconic phrase immediately into my lexicon. It's, it's locked in. It's just there. And Gopnik's like in gig has gotten himself as well. You find out later in the book sort of how he's gotten himself in with this community of magicians who we get to spend time listening to them, talk to each other about what these tricks mean and how to develop tricks and what it looks like to have the real work. But then he's also hanging out with his mom, who is a master home baker, learning to make bread. He learns to drive in his 60s. He's lived in a wonderful sequence, just a wonderful sequence. And then also, I think it it takes a surprising turn at the Mm -hmm. end where he writes about a personal challenge that he's had and going to therapy to face that challenge and learn very gradually how to overcome it um, and how to master, try to master that like component of himself and his personal challenges. I just found it wonderful. You know, I don't know how to do anything now that I didn't know how to do (laughs) before. Wait, what minute? You, you lost me. Oh, before you read it. I mean, in general, it's like, wait, you were born whole? You're like Mork and Mork and Mindy? You just came out yeah, of the yeah, egg ready? No. Okay. Adam Gopnik did not teach me how to oh, do anything I see. in this There were book. no peer-reviewed studies here. There's no, there's no statistics. Right. There's no, yeah. here's a five-step plan to um, right. get good at chess. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. But it's a real, like push to think about as many things in your life as practices Mm. as you can and to frame the doing of the work, the trying to get good at a thing as being just as, if not more important than actually arriving at being good at the thing. I loved it. I I really liked it too. I did it on audio. It's a Pushkin production. And you asked me, um, since you did it in print, is there any special sauce? And there's maybe one line of actual David Blaine in there, which is weird. Mm. It's actually so unusual for the book because there is anything else like that a little music every now and again so and Gopnik's a good narrator I think he is a very good narrator it feels a very naturalistic conversational approach which I definitely enjoyed but it's not a Florence Williams situation so you're not Got missing it. or a, or a Lake Bell um, situation there yeah I think I think the thing I appreciated about it is look we said it before it's become a bit of a chestnut for us but there's a reason it has is Give me a New Yorker writer <laughs> writing about something I'm interested in mm-hmm. that other people who aren't craftspeople of sentences do. Because so many of the, well, Talent by Tyler Cohen, a book I really liked. I got a lot of interesting information out of it. But they're not stylists, right? They're not, that's mm-hmm. not what they're doing. And writing is thinking. And if you spend more time on the sentence level, you can come to other kinds of internally generated points that you're not going to get by the abstract of something from The Lancet or something like that. It's a different kind of inquiry. And I think the takeaway for me, if there's one, is this idea of the real work, which is a wonderful phrase, Mad Men for Magicians. Yeah. Do, do we just, yes. Did we just pitch that? Okay. Different situation. <laughs> I'm Mad ready Men to read X. that whole book. Um. But this idea of the real work being in many of the things that we try to do, there's all the other stuff, 
And then there's the real work on that, right? Mm-hmm. So to take first edition, because that's what's front of mind for me, I think I can make a fairly good 45 minutes to an hour of, of podcast that many people could enjoy. And I'm not trying to humble brag here, Rebecca. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've done yeah, this with reading lives and annotated, and I think this show um, in its own way. But the real work on making a podcast viable is getting it into in front of enough people that might be interested in listening to it, right? Because anyone can talk mm-hmm. into a mic, and the tools are very good. And there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there that you can you can. There's a bunch of books out there you can listen to a bunch of shows. You can go to school on it like you can go to school on anything, whether it's a novel or or anything else like that. But the real work of making a podcast into a thing that pays for itself, if that's the bright line you're going to use, which I'm going to use here, is getting it in front of enough people that some of them will subscribe and some smaller percentage of them will tell other people. That, that's actually the real work. And like for BookRite itself, and this is something we've seen in digital media itself, the real work is being sustainable, right? The real work is getting it so that in a, in a given year, you make more money than you spend so you can keep going. And that's weird to say, but I think it's clarifying in that way. The real work on this is the pass, you know, or the prestige in this particular trick, or it's the distraction. Like, Everything else, it's not the blank notebook. The blank notebook is not the real work on your project, right? We talk about this right. all the time. And so I've, I've, I've come to think of that already in like the three weeks since I read this as a shorthand for cut the BS of all the things, of all the performative garbage that you do around this thing or that people talk about and what is the real work on that and what's hard about it, what's sustaining about it. Um, where can you go and how do you get good at it? Because one of the things he says about driving, it's like you have to learn to do it, but it's not that it's hard, it's that it's dangerous, <laughs> right? Whereas <laughs> right. where sleight of hand is not dangerous, it's just devilishly hard. And so you're trying to figure out what are the, what are, what are the, what are the, what's the texture of that real work you're trying to do? What are the different features? Um, and I find that very, very, very yeah, interesting. It, it made me think, since he talked about practice so mm-hmm. much, it made me think about yoga practice. And I've had a lot of yoga teachers, but the two that I can pinpoint as people that I would say have the real work on the things are the ones that can do really fancy, impressive stuff. They have practiced a lot, but who just fundamentally understand like how the body moves, what feels good, how to transition between different kinds of postures. They have multidisciplinary practices. You know, one has been like a gymnast and a Cirque du Soleil performer and now teaches yoga and their classes are the simplest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They do like very (laughs) simple things impeccably. Um, And that feels very magical. It's not come here and you'll, when you leave, you'll be able to turn 45 flips and stand on your head and you too will be a contortionist. But being in the like teaching hands of someone who has that real work on the thing um, and who then can guide you into something that's simple, but very well done uh, is, I think, really powerful and I think really inspiring and gives us all something like whatever your version of that thing is. That's mm-hmm. what is aspirational to me now, I think, at this point in life and career of how do we dial in, like, how do you get past, as you were saying, the BS around stuff and dial in the part of this that really matters. Mm -hmm. And the part that when you've like tried a whole bunch of stuff and practiced a whole bunch of things, how do you like strip it back to where the soul of that thing lives and communicate that and connect on that and come to that idea or that expression of something. And 
I don't know. I think the fact that Gopnik writes about these very particular and concrete things like performing a magic trick, learning to bake bread, learning to drive, but it raises all these, you know, broader and less tangible questions is also an indication of, you know, what a great book it is. A writer who can do that and just have you thinking about your own personal examples and raise all kinds of big stuff. I feel like I'm going to be talking about the real work for for like years. Yeah. And this is going to sound like a slight, but it's actually a compliment to the book and to Gopnik, which is, I'm not entirely sure that this book makes sense in in a pitch version in this regard, (laughs) Uh which is, I think there's a world which I would believe, and I haven't read any interviews or anything with Gopnik about it, but like he had a couple of experiences that he wanted to put into a book, and this Mm -hmm. idea of the real work emerged as a way to string them together. Right. This yeah. was this was more this was more inductive than deductive writing, where you're we're looking at specific things and trying to make something out of it. Yeah. That's, but I think that's I think actually that's right. I think that's actually a ben- I mean that is a creative process, right? That's not bullshit. That is, mm-hmm. I'm looking at some things I'm interested in. What can I find that connects them, and that, and then something else emerged in the process of it. So it's a compliment to the book to say. It's not structured like you would expect a normal book that's about the real work or the power of habit. You know, you could see it become one of these <laughs> yeah, kinds of or books. Like the jokier end of that spectrum is like A.J. Jacobs. Like that's this right. was not Let Adam me get good Gopnik at magic. waking. Right. right. Yeah. It's not Gopnik waking up one day and being like, what are 15 things I can learn to do and then mm-hmm. write a book about them? I do think you're right that he had had a couple of these experiences where learning to master something was kind of an eye-opening moment for yeah. him. And then how do I synthesize this into something bigger? And he arrives yeah. at, How does it connect to stuff I just, as right. part of my life in some way. Right. And I think, especially by the end, I'd, I'd love to talk about structure with this because mm-hmm. they save the most personal thing to the end. Where yeah. I think in a different version, that comes pretty quick. I mean, the magic stuff is the, the most thrilling, it's is so, too strong, but it's not it's too hook. strong. It's really great. And I can see a version where the whole book was about you know magic, <laughs> but... I see why they led with that, but by the time you get to the end, you can see like this is embedded in his. He's embodying some of these things yeah. in a very well done, and, um, anyway, fascinating book. I've been hot and cold on Gopnik in the past, yeah. so I wasn't really sure what to expect going into this. But this one was, I think, just the right, maybe the right writer with the right experiences at the right time. Yeah, that's our show. You can go to bookriot.com slash listen to see the show notes that includes the stories we talked about and the books we talked about, including Bandit Queens and real the real work. Uh, you can also find a link there to first edition. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Tra- the trailer is out, so you can hear 30 seconds. Um, but there'll be links to the socials if you want to follow along there. First ed- first episode comes out on the 5th. So uh, if you're listening to this on a Monday, as, as most people are, uh, a couple of days away from it, you can hear Rebecca and I come out. It's not it's not an accident that Rebecca's on first um, for, for reasons I think should be obvious. Uh, but... I hope you'll give that a try. You can email us here, podcast at bookriot.com. And Rebecca, I think that's it. We'll talk to you soon. 